The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Today we're going to be in the book of Galatians. And uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. It's been about a month since I preached out of Galatians. And so uh, just by way of reminder... Uh, just real quick, Galatians was written by Paul to the churches in Galatia because they were being tempted to believe a message that came from a number of teachers that had come up, religious teachers that had come up from Jerusalem, presumably under the name of the apostles in Jerusalem, and they were teaching a message that not only did you have to believe the gospel, but if if you wanted to be really spiritual, if you wanted to really please God, you also needed to obey Jewish laws. And if you wanted to be holy, you had to not only believe the gospel, but you had to obey the Mosaic law and the dietary laws and the Sabbaths and the, all those things. And so they've been given the name Judaizers uh, by scholars and commentators and because they were taking... Judaism and trying to apply it and add it to Christianity. And so Paul rebukes them. He says, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Chapter 3, verse 1. Who has captured you under their spell? He rebukes them. He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was placarded. He was publicly portrayed before your eyes as crucified. And by that he means he was portrayed placarded before your eyes as sufficient as all you need as supreme as the one who is worthy of all praise as the the way the truth and the life the only way to the father why in the world he says let me ask you this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith are you so foolish have you begun by the spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh He says, why in the world would you go back under that slavery again? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed was in vain? And so he rebukes them. And he tells them that just like you started the Christian faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing, you continue in the Christian faith the same way. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. And Paul was so upset about this. He said, this is a hill to die on. This is something that I'm going to write to you about. I'm going to rebuke you, and I'm not going to let it go. It's not an area where we can agree to disagree. Because the very gospel's at stake. The message of the cross is at stake. Because if righteousness could come through obeying the law, then Christ died for no reason. I might get a little worked up about this. He says, this is a big issue. This is important. You need to understand this. This great doctrine of not only justification by faith alone, but also sanctification by faith alone. And so he's continuing on in this passage. And we ended in verse 14. He says, in verse 10, he says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. You want to be under that system, you've got to do everything. And if you can't do everything, which you haven't, 
You're under a curse. But then he says, Christ redeemed us, verse 13, from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. In our place as our substitute. So that in Christ Jesus, verse 14, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So what he says is the law brings a curse. The law was never intended to justify, nor was it ever intended to sanctify. The law was intended, as we're going to see today, to shut everyone up under sin. In fact, he says righteousness can't come by the works of the law. It can only come by faith. So here this morning, just by way of transition, he he says in verse 14, The blessing of Abraham, which we looked at, this this promise that God made to Abraham concerning Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, who is going to restore everything lost in the garden. This promise isn't only going to come to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, to all people. And it's connected to the coming, pouring out of the Holy Spirit the reception of this promised spirit through faith, the new covenant. And so he's going to go into this, verses 15 to 22. And what he's going to do is he's going to set up a contrast. He's going to give you a picture of two men and two different covenants. A picture of Moses and the old covenant or the Mosaic law. And he's going to give you a picture of Jesus and the new covenant the new law, the law of Christ. And this is what he does in verses 15 to 22. So that's just what I want to look at this morning is this contrast between these these two covenants. In fact, um, your Bible, the word Old Testament and New Testament, that is just another word for covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Maybe that's helpful to think about the way your Bible's arranged. You have all of the messages about the Old Covenant, but through all of it, as we looked at when we even looked at the Pentateuch, is that the New Covenant was promised from the very beginning. And then you have, after the coming of Jesus, the New Covenant that's given, and all of the writings about that and how it fulfills everything that came before. In fact, the book of Hebrews shows us this incredibly well. Jesus is better. I mean, you want to know the message of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's better than the angels, chapter 1. He's better than Moses, chapter 2. He's better than the high priests of Levite, chapters 3 and 4. He's better than the temple. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than everything. He's the fulfillment of it all. All find their fulfillment in him. And he is the culmination, the completion, the summing up at the high point of the ages everything that the Father is doing to restore and make everything new in Him. That's the message of Hebrews. And here Paul gets on the same path and he says, you want to go back under that old covenant, but it was only temporary. I'm getting ahead of myself, but he says it was temporary. It was for a period of time to shut people up under sin until Christ came and He could bring His new law and His new covenant and the Spirit and life. Let's read this together. Before I get too carried away. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And we're going to stop there this morning. Actually, this whole section is a longer thing, but we just I chose not to cover it in one week. But this argument he's building on. He says, why, in last time we looked last month, that why would you go back under this law? It can never save you. You're under a curse because you have to keep everything in it. And now he's going to give two examples from their own history, or at least from, Christ, from the history of the scriptures. And he says, I want you to look at Moses and Abraham, these two men, because a promise was given to Abraham and a covenant was made, and a law was given to Moses and a covenant was made. But the Mosaic law, the law given to Moses was never intended to save. It was never intended to produce righteousness. It was intended to shut up everyone under sin. To show them that they in fact are guilty and deserving of the punishment of God. And it was a jailer until Christ came. And when Christ came now, the promise made to Abraham 430 years before he ever made a law with Moses comes to all of those who are in Christ by faith. And this promise includes the spirit and it includes life. It includes hope It is glorious. It is the good news of the gospel. So first we see the promise to Abraham, verses 15 to 18, is received by faith. So when we're looking at Abraham, he says in verse 15, God made a covenant with Abraham and it represents God's unchangeable sovereign will. His plan, his purpose. Verse 15 To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. So Paul rebukes them. I love, though, that even in his rebuke here in verse 15, he says, brothers. To give a human example, brothers, and this isn't like California, hey, bro. This is, what he means by this is, I still think of you as Christians, even though you've fallen under this false teaching. I consider you my brothers in the faith. In the Lord Jesus. I think that's really instructive to us. When we have an opportunity to speak the truth in love and to correct those in error who profess Christ, we shouldn't immediately think, well, they must not be Christians because they've fallen into this error or they're thinking wrongly. If they profess faith in Christ and confess that He is their Lord, we should treat them as brothers and sisters. Paul says, let me give you an example of everyday life. A man-made covenant. 
It's like a will at death, or, or possibly Paul had in mind this Roman practice where the property was given, passed down as an inheritance while the, the, the owner was still alive, but he could still enjoy it until he died. In either case, under Roman law, it was irrevocable. The will, the last will and testament of someone who died was irrevocable in Roman law. Or if it was this, this special case where I could still be alive and give my property and my possessions to my oldest son, and even though I'm still alive, I could enjoy it until he inherits it. Either way, in Roman law, it was irrevocable. I couldn't, uh, there can be no change to it. He says, he brings up this example, and he says, this is the kind of covenant God made with Abraham. It was irrevocable, unchangeable. In fact, it was a promise. Verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham. It was a promise. And, and when God makes a promise, it's not like when we make promises. And even if we make promises in good faith, with every intention to keep them, sometimes circumstances don't allow us to. Because we don't know the future. We, or we're not powerful enough to accomplish the promise we made. Circumstances affect us. But God, when he makes a promise, the one who knows all things, who knows the future, who's all-powerful, who can bring everything according, do work everything according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1, when he makes a promise, it's a done deal. It's good. And this is important for us because I don't know about you, but I'm tempted to doubt the promises of God at times. Because of my circumstances, my vision gets so small. I get so wrapped up in my trials and, and, and I get so wrapped up in the fact that God hasn't answered and he's delaying and he's waiting that I begin to worry and I fret. And I don't tell God I don't believe you promised me that. What I do is I reveal it because I'm anxious and I'm fearful and I'm running helter-skelter trying to solve the problem myself in my own strength, under my own power. You've never done that, right? Well, we're doubting the promise of God. And so this is a matter of faith. We need to believe the promises. So God makes this promise to Abraham. And remember, this happened in Abraham's life. And I think Abraham had a lot more patience than me, right? God had promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's like, wow. We're beyond the age of bearing children. My, my, my wife and I, how am I going to have a son? I just got this guy, Eliezer, who's my heir. He says, no, I'm going to give you a son. Well, time passes, and the son doesn't come. And so what does Abraham and Sarah do? They take matters into their own hands. And Abraham goes into Sarah's handmaid, sleeps with her, has a child with her, Ishmael. And God comes to him again and says, no, I promised you a son. And, and Ishmael that's not the one I promised. And so God says, this time next year, you're going to have a son. The angel of the Lord that appeared there to Abraham. Sarah laughs, of course. And then, as the ultimate irony, they name him Isaac, which means laughter when he's born. And I bet they had a great laugh about it. I bet it was a wonderful time. Joyous. God knows how to keep his promises. And I think even in that initial promise to Abraham, as he delays the promise, as he shows that his time is not our time, it ought to teach us 
that all of the other promises that have come since then that find their yes and amen in Christ, we ought to be patient for. We shouldn't expect that all of God's promises to us will be fulfilled today. But we long for them and we look forward to them and we hope in those promises. And we trust that what God has ordained for us today is his good purpose and plan for us. Now, in verse 16, when God makes the promise to Abraham, he had a single recipient in mind. That's what Paul says here. He had a single recipient in mind. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. The word offspring is this idea of a, it could either be a singular or plural word given in the context. You don't know. It's kind of like the word deer in our English. It could mean one deer or it could mean a whole herd. But it's the same idea. And so, so Paul here is he's explaining something theological about this idea of the seed, the offspring of Abraham. He says, you might have thought it meant a lot of people, but God had one recipient in mind. Not referring to many. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, verse 16, but referring to one and to your offspring. And then he says who it is. Who is Christ? He had a single recipient in mind. The flow of thought travels from justification by faith, chapters 1 and 2, to the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 3, to the promise of the Spirit in verse 14. And now he says... The one to whom all this promise was ultimately intended to fall was to the Christ, who is Jesus, God's Son. And then how does it get to all of us? Because we're in him. That's what he's going to go on to say, verse 22. References made, Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22 in particular, Genesis 24. References made to Abraham's offspring who are going to be blessed. God is going to bring this blessing to Abraham's seed. Paul says, the reason the blessing can come to Jews and Gentiles is because God had a recipient in mind when he made the promise. Just like when he made the promise to Eve that one of her seed, one of her descendants, one of her offspring was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Just like he made a promise to David and said one of your seed, one of your offspring, one of them is going to sit on the throne and he's going to rule forever. And all of those promises in the Old Testament find their object in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says this is what happened God is faithful to keep his promises. And I think he's anticipating in this next section some objections. The first objection I think he's anticipating is that for the Judaizers, for those who were teaching, they believed that physical descent was guarantee of spiritual heritage. This is what Jesus ran into. We have Moses as our father. We have Abraham as our father. Don't tell us that we are whitewashed tombs, Jesus, because we're the ones who are righteous. You're the one that's born out of wedlock, right? Born of adultery, born of some sort of sinfulness. Jesus said, no. 
Don't say because you have Abraham as your father that that means you're right with God. Many are gonna say, I did all these great things in your name and in your name I cast out demons and Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. For Paul even, in Romans 9, physical descent is no guarantee of spiritual heritage. He says, it's not as though the word of God failed for all who are descended from Israel, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all of the children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. He says, even in the case of Abraham, Ishmael was not part of the promise. So Christ is the seed. And in verse 29, those in Christ are the offspring. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The Messiah as the true descendant of Abraham and the true representative of the nation is seen as Abraham's true seed along with all those who are in him. Verse 22, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And then the second objection I think that Paul's anticipating here is, well, what then about the law? Moses gave us the law, and surely that giving of the law is superior to this promise to Abraham. And so he says, verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. The Mosaic law is not superior to the Abrahamic promise. The Abrahamic covenant. So as to make the promise to Abraham void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise. The Mosaic law cannot invalidate the promise. And in the Pentateuch, we see that. Even Moses himself wrote Really, the Pentateuch is one book with one purpose, and Moses wrote that the big idea of the importance of living by faith and the need for a new heart. Abraham was justified by faith, who lived apart from the Mosaic law before the Mosaic law, and Moses, who lived under the Mosaic law, died without even going into the promised land at the end of the Pentateuch. And at the end of the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, you need to have your heart circumcised. You need a new heart. And he then says, you can't do it, but God's going to do it when he sends his Messiah. See, the Pentateuch is a lesson drawn from the lives of its two leading men, Abraham and Moses, just like this passage in Galatians. The Pentateuch lays out two fundamentally dissimilar ways of walking with God. One is to be like Moses under the Sinai law, under a curse. It's called the Sinai covenant. And the other is to be like Abraham by faith, apart from the law called the new covenant. And the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, tells the story of the covenant of Sinai, Mosaic law, and its failure. But it's not written on behalf of that old covenant as if that's where we ought to live. It's written from the perspective of those whose eyes are fixed not on Mount Sinai, but on the covenant that lies beyond it when there's going to be circumcision of the heart. And because of this, even the beginning of the Bible is ultimately about Christ. The descendant of Eve, Genesis 2.15. The descendant of Abraham, Genesis 12.1-3. The descendant of Judah, Genesis 49. The prophet, priest, king who's like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. The one who's going to pour out the spirit and circumcise the heart, Deuteronomy 30. It's all about Jesus, the Messiah who's coming. In fact, that's why Jesus in John 5.46 said, 
Moses wrote of me. How can he say that? We don't see the name Jesus anywhere in the Pentateuch. It's because Moses was looking ahead, Hebrews tells us, to the promise, to a city whose architect and designer is God. And he despised the riches of Egypt because he was looking to the Messiah, the Christ. And we see it throughout the Pentateuch and throughout the Old Testament, and it pointed to Jesus, and Moses himself would have amened Paul's message. Think about that. These Judaizers who thought they knew the law better than Paul and said, you need, if you want to be spiritual, you need to get under the Mosaic law. Moses himself would have amened Paul's message. He was under that law, and he died under that law. And he pointed to a promise and a covenant that was coming in a Messiah that was going to be greater than that law, that was going to cause a circumcision of the heart and a pouring out of the Spirit, a restoration of what was lost in the garden. And he looked forward to the Messiah. So Paul says this is an issue of the gospel. Verse 18, he says, the Abrahamic covenant, the basis of it, was grace and not law. In contrast to the Mosaic law, the basis of which was law, you had to obey it or else you're going to be punished. The basis of the Abrahamic covenant was grace. It was an expression of God's grace. God gave it to Abraham by promise, and when he ratified it in Genesis 15, when you see that picture of the flaming oven, the burning torch that walks through the animals, it's two representations of God, who is light, walking through the animals. And Abraham fell asleep, deep sleep, and it shows the, the nature that, guess what? The one who ratified this covenant, the one who's going to make good on this promise, the one who's going to make sure it happens is not Abraham. It's God. And so Abraham received it by faith and was therefore justified. So this is the one picture we see. This promise to Abraham, which is based in grace, which is only received by faith, but has the hope and promise of the Spirit and the Messiah. And then verses 19 and 20, the Mosaic law that's inferior in its purpose not contrary to the law of God, but inferior in his purpose. It was never designed to save. Verses 19 and 20, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That's the first thing we see. See, the law, the law was given as a sign of Israel's Failure. They failed to believe and obey God. And here Paul says the law was added because of transgressions. And when we went through the Pentateuch, we saw that. Every time Israel committed major idolatry, like worshiping the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Remember Abraham took their money and threw it in the fire and out popped calf? Magically. They worshiped it. And so God gave them the law. Added law. Heavier burdens, exposing more sin. And then in Leviticus 18, they worshiped the goat idols. And they were committing idolatry, and so more law was given. More transgressions were were revealed and manifested. The law was added because of transgressions. The law was given to bring a knowledge that sin was a transgression before God. That it wasn't just a breaking of a rule, it was offending a person. That's why it's so offensive. 
You can, you can speed down this road really easy, right by our church. I try not to do it because the speed limit drops, but it's so easy because it's pretty empty, pretty wide. You got to dodge some puddles here this morning. But we break that law. We, we speed, and we don't think much of it because we're not offending a person unless one of the neighbors comes out and yells at you for driving too fast. But when we break God's law, we're not just simply breaking a rule. We're offending a holy person. Have you ever been offended? Offended where it's a righteous offense because someone broke your trust. Someone lied to you. Someone mistreated one of your family members. Someone did you wrong. That pales in comparison to the offense that we have before a holy, righteous God. We've broken his law. And so God gives this law to Israel to show them this, to bring a knowledge that this sin they committed was an offense against a holy God. And also, Paul says, it was to keep them from straying until God sent the Messiah. It's kind of in between the lines here, but in verse 19 he says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. Why would he say this? Because if the law wasn't given, Israel would have never been pinned in, as it were, by the law and the righteous requirement of God and the need to practice all the sacrificial system and the clean uh, dietary laws, etc., to draw near to God. They'd have wandered away into apostasy like all the other nations of whom God is their creator. And so God uses it for a temporary time, for a purpose to, to keep them from straying until God sends the Messiah, the offspring to whom the promise was made. And so God intends the Mosaic law to only be in effect for God's people until the coming of Christ. The law was temporary, the promise is permanent. This would have shocked the Judaizers. This might shock you this morning a little bit. Because we wouldn't say we're antinomian. We don't live apart from the law. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ, the New Testament says. Getting ahead of myself again. Moses is the mediator of the old covenant, the Mosaic law. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, the law of Christ. And then he goes on to say here, verse 20, Verses 19 and 20, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The old law, the Mosaic law, was put into place on Mount Sinai. It was by Moses and angels, and there was mediators and intermediaries. It was a two-party covenant, God and the people. The new covenant promised to Abraham is a one-party covenant. That's what this sort of uh, verse 20 means. The intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. It's a little bit obscure in our English, what Paul's talking about here. But what he's basically saying is, well, on the one hand, God dealt with Abraham directly face to face, so to speak. On the other hand, the Mosaic Covenant came to God's people through a mediator and through angelic helpers as well. And the intimacy that Abraham experienced one-on-one with God face to face can only come by faith, by grace, And so what God does is he sends his Messiah to be the offspring 
so that we now can draw near to God without a mediator, without a sacrificial system. We can come to God because God himself is our mediator in God the Son. And this should bring us great hope. Everything lost in the fall is regained in Christ. Everything demanded by the law is fulfilled in Christ. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us on our behalf. Everything foreshadowed in the old covenant finds its completion in Christ. Now that we're in Christ, we have all the answers and we have all the hope. Christ and his cross changes everything. Sinful fear is changed into reverent fear in Christ. Idolatry is replaced with genuine worship of God in spirit and in truth. Forgetting the Lord like Israel did so often is replaced with a spirit of adoption who stirs up family affections so we cry out, Abba, Father, he's going to say in chapter 4. So that we no longer forget the Lord, but we actually remember the Lord. We remember him and we know him not simply as almighty God in heaven, maker of heaven and earth, who stands in righteousness as judge, but we draw near to him with family affections for God as Father, so that we cry out, Abba. The law that was written on stone at Mount Sinai is replaced with God's law written on the heart. Circumcision of the flesh under the old covenant is replaced with circumcision of the heart that God promised would happen. In Christ, the covering of sins for a year is replaced with complete forgiveness forever. In Christ, then, seeing and savoring yourself as God, as Savior, is replaced with seeing and savoring Christ. I mean, what should our response be? Hebrews chapter 2, I think, gives us a really good response to this. Because this message could be a little bit abstract. It could be a little bit academic. It could be a little bit like, okay, yeah, I understand these two things happen in history. I understand Abraham and Moses and the Old Covenant and New Covenant. But what about today? What does this mean for me? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Why don't you turn over there? Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, that's the old covenant, to Moses, and every transgression or disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard him, while God also bore witnesses by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. So he says, you better pay much closer attention to this than the Mosaic law. Because that was reliable, proved steadfast, every transgression disobedience received its just reward but the message that came from the lord jesus christ through his apostles that's been written down here it is a great salvation but if we neglect it there's a greater judgment that's why paul back in galatians ends this short little illustration of abraham and moses Verses 21 and 22, back in Galatians 3. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? It sounds like, Paul, that what you're saying is because the law was temporary, because it was inferior and never intended to save, that somehow you're against the law of Moses and it's contrary to the purposes of God. And he says, may it never be. Absolutely not. The same God who gave the new covenant, the promise to Abraham, gave the Mosaic law. It's a reflection of his holy righteous character. It's good. It's not good when you try to use the law for its unintended purpose. You ever try to use a tool for what it's not designed for? One time I tried to drive a nail with my drill. It doesn't work. God says through Paul, if you try to use the Mosaic law for what it was never intended for, you're under slavery, you're under a curse, you will never be free you will live in fear all of your days. And he says over in Colossians, it has the appearance of wisdom to do so. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. But it's of no value against fleshly indulgence. And so he says, no, the law is good. It's not contrary to the promises of God But he says, you need to use it for its intended purpose. It was never intended to save or sanctify. End of verse 21. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. By the Scripture, he means the law. Paul makes an important point. Because God gave both the Mosaic law and the promise to Abraham... Regarding Christ, they can't be opposed to one another. He must have a reason for the law. That is God. The purpose, however, was not to give life and never intended to make anyone righteous. The purpose of the law is to shut up everyone under sin, verse 22. Imprisoned everything under sin. Why? It's what makes the gospel so glorious. So that, verse 22, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's just like when you go buy a ring and they put that black mat down to show the beauty of the diamond. The Mosaic law shuts everything up under sin, shows the righteous character of God, shows that we indeed break the law, we offend a person. We deserve his judgment and his wrath. And then we hear this message that God loved you, a rebel and a sinner, and he loved you so much he gave his son to die for you in your place. Even though you've run from him and rebelled against him and you've tried to wreck your life by your own actions, and he loves you so much he gave his son And the son became the curse for you. He bore your penalty on his body, on the tree, so that you could be made righteous with God and you could be drawn near to God and you could have forgiveness and you could be saved, not only in the future, but right now. Saved from yourself. It magnifies the gospel. It is glorious. This backdrop of the law that says... 
you are condemned under a holy God is the backdrop where that same God says, I loved you so much I planned a salvation where I gave my son so that you could go free and you could draw near to me. And the promise comes not by the works of the law, but by faith you received the gift. Tony Sinelli at George Fox's funeral yesterday said it so well. Religion expresses this idea of a moral duty or a moral practice that you have so that eventually you could be accepted by God. The gospel is not religion in that sense. The gospel means good news. It's a message to be believed, not a way of life to be practiced. It's a message to be believed, and that way of life to be practiced flows out of the effects of us being united to Christ, having the Spirit indwelling us. Have you believed the message? Have you received it as a gift by faith? Here he says it's a gift. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God gives it to you as a gift when you believe in his son. Have you believed in his son and received a gift? The purpose of the law is to shut up everything under sin, but it makes the gospel glorious. We don't have to do anything. Christ has done it all. We simply believe the report by faith and we receive this promise as a gift. And why is this so important? Because our default switch as a fallen humanity, is legalism. I need to find a way to be acceptable to God. I'm going to make New Year's resolutions. I'm going to change my living. I'm going to change my doing. And this is going to be a better year because I'm going to have Nike theology. Just do it. Sola bootstrappa. Pick myself up by my bootstraps and live this Christian life. No. Paul says... Someone's bewitched you if you believe that. You're under curse if you believe that. Live out of the gospel that you've believed. Live out of who you are in Christ. The one who is the seed of Abraham. The one to whom all the promises came. And if we're in him, we receive all those same blessings and promises. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters this year. I pray that 2017 would be a year when you send revival. I long for it. Father, I pray that this would be a year that we would see a powerful work of your spirit in our community and see people saved and delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of your beloved son, our loved ones, our neighbors, I pray that you would use us. I pray you'd start in our own hearts. Carve out the sin that remains in our lives, Father. Cut it out like a cancer. Remove it from us. Make us like Christ. Do this by your Spirit. Deliver my brothers and sisters from the fear and the slavery of legalism, Father. May they rejoice in who they are in Christ. May they live out of who they are. May they preach the gospel to their hearts day in and day out. We are great sinners. We're far worse than we think, but in Christ we are loved more than we could possibly imagine.
We are accepted. We are forgiven in Christ. We are redeemed. We are exalted and lifted up to the heavens and the heavenly realms in Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you would make this, you would drive this down in the hearts of my brethren so deep that it is instinctual, that it goes to the level of their affections, their desires, that they would want to see the glory of Christ above all things. Do this work in our midst, I pray in Jesus' name. to this message or learn more please visit calvarytruth.org